Hey guys, good morning. How you doing? Name's Drew. It is a joy to be together this morning. Um, welcome to Bedrock, if it's your first time here. And I am one of the elders here, so it's, um, I get the honor of teaching um, and sharing the pulpit as well with, um, with Brian Taylor and from time to time a couple other guys. So uh, it's exciting. Uh, today we are going to be finishing up our Life in the Garden series. So you can go to Genesis chapter 3, um, but we're not going to stay there, but you can go there. We are kind of going to be all over the place. Yes, we are going to be all over the place. Um, we have uh, the, the premise of this whole series has been, let's look at the first three chapters of the Bible um, and see what it has to say and if it's relevant for us today. And what we found is that there truly is um, there's incredible teachings. Um, it is one of the most radical pieces um, of literature that's ever been written. Uh, but our encouragement and our hope is that this life that we see in the garden that is modeled for us, that's broken by sin, is one that we can continue to walk in now because of Jesus. So we're going to be in Genesis 3, 20 through 24. Um, to start out, if you don't have a Bible, we have them available for you out in the lobby. Um, what, is, what is your favorite movie? This is where we're going to start. So Megan, Megan and I agree on a lot of the big things in life, which is good. The big things are good. Um, but we cannot, for the life of us, agree on what we should watch on a movie night. You know, just like on a Wednesday night. Um, and Netflix isn't helping these days. It's just not great. So uh, Megan's, I'll, I'll tell you this way, Megan's um, ideal movie, the plot line goes, you know, it goes up like this. And then once you hit here, it just takes a hard spike. And it's just like all joy. Just happiness, 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 and it ends up here. There are no dips. There is nothing that's difficult in the movie. Everything is just like, it's awesome, and it's going to get even greater, you know, and it ends on this high note. So she loves, well, I guess Hallmark, but, you know, she loves these movies. And I'm like, I love like a roller coaster ride, you know, like I love something that's just like takes my emotions all over the place. Like it could be sad. It could be it could be violent, like all of it. I'm like, I, it's just like, I love something that is constantly, like I, get, I can feel it as I'm watching it. Um, and so my favorite movie, which she refuses to watch with me, um, is Inception. I love it. It's so good, right? And I, I think I like it because it is just that. Like it's a dream within a dream within a dream, you know? And you're just like, you're, you're on the whole way. You're just like completely like, Leo, what are you doing? This is awesome. Um, and, and you get to the end, right? And if anyone has seen Inception, you get to the end and they have these things called totems, right? Which, you know, this, I'm not going to go into the Inception deal. But it, it, it helps you identify whether or not you're in a dream or you're in reality. And so at the very end, it's like the final moment, and he like spins his totem, which is like a top. And if it falls, it means that he is in reality, and if it continues to spin, he's in a dream. And then Christopher Nolan, I think, just cuts off the screen, you know? And like, that's the end. And you're just like, what happened? You know, like, I need to know what happened. And the reason that you need to know, and there's all, like, if you type in ending of Inception, you will find blog post after blog post explaining to you exactly what happened. Everyone disagrees. But um, there's the reason that you have this inclination is because, like, instinctually you know, like, that moment, whether he's in reality or whether he's in a dream, that bears weight on the rest of the story, 
right? So like this ending kind of helps me interpret and understand and to bring to conclusion everything that I just watched. What happened to Leo in that scene? <laughs> um, and so there's this, there is this instinctual thing that we have in all of us that we know that the ending is extremely valuable because it tells us how to interpret the entire story. Um, and as we walked into this series, we knew we were spending 90% of our time in the beginning, the first three chapters. But we thought it's probably best for us to not just leave at this moment where we're just kind of left in despair. It's probably best for us to then take a look at the end and say, all right, what if we go from the first three chapters to the last two chapters um, and we figure out what is this what is the story that's told in between these two gardens? Because there is a restored world that we're moving towards that is good and resembles the beginning. So let's read. Let's read our passage. Um, Genesis 3, 20 through 24. We're going to be moving today. So, all right. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east... At the east of the garden um, of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, even as, um, Lord, even as we, as we begin and I talk about um, the end and the value of the end, I'm reminded um, that Lord, one of the many names that you give yourself is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Lord, that before you there was nothing, and that after you, Lord, there, into eternity, you are completion in and of yourself. You are going to bring this world to its correct order. You're going to restore things as they've always meant to be. So today, um, Lord, as we see how you have done that, Lord, in the way in which you are restoring this world, Lord, I pray that we would cling to a promise. I think my, my heart, Lord, is to see that the Holy Spirit and the New Testament writers um, brought about a serious longing and a joy and a desire um, for, for this new heaven, this new earth, this promise that we would have. Um, Lord, and it created in them a perseverance in the world that we're currently in. So, Lord, praying that you would do that today. We love you, Lord. Grateful just to be yours in your name. Amen. All right, so where have we been? Where have we been over the past three months? Uh, Genesis chapter 3. So you're already there. We're going to go to Revelation at some point, but you can stick there for a second. Um, so in the beginning, um, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, right? That's the intro that we have. The Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, and there is this nothingness that exists. There is this emptiness that is represented by the waters, and yet the Spirit remains. And then God speaks, and he speaks 
light into the world. And the, and the light pierces that darkness and it immediately begins to create, create things, right? So we said this over and over again, that there is form and there's function, right? There he forms this world and then he fills this world with things. So he forms this world. He makes the heavens above and the sky and the earth below. And then he fills that with life. Like he speaks life into this world. He creates, we took, I remember watching like a short, I forget what it was, but like this short video about um, just the, the different creatures that are in the ocean and the creatures that are in the air, the nature that we have kind of just taken for granted that is just full of abundant life. And you see this picture in the garden of just abundance, like abundance in provision, like in life that God has created. So the picture that we get, most importantly, because the main character is God, the picture that we get of God is one that is a creator and that is creates something that is good. And that goodness produces real life. It's very good. And so God creates this world and he produces life. And in it, he places man and woman. And they experience this peace that is in the Garden of Eden. And they, get, they were given this instruction They're given an instruction to cultivate, right, to work the ground um, and to fill the earth and subdue it. It's the same instruction that was given that is is given to also animals that like this thing is going to be filled and we are meant to different from it. It's meant to subdue this world in a completely different way. So we are called to rule. The most distinguishing thing about our place in this is that we are made in the image of God. And we got we talked a lot about what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means that we have. We have the opportunity to present his character, to present his rule and his authority, or to display his love towards the entire earth. And in doing so, we reflect him. We're his ambassadors. We're his representatives in this world in a completely different way. And there's two key partnerships. Remember, the first key partnership is this partnership that we have, and it's the most important one that we have with God, that in bearing his image, the way that we do this is through relationship with him. We talked about the seventh day. The seventh day was a day not where God just stopped, but where he remained. Like he rested upon, he dwelled in. And you get this idea that the Sabbath was meant to be something that was built around the relationship that we have with God. Like there is this resting in his creation. So there's this relationship that we have where God is walking in the cool of the day, as we see at one point, um, with God and this partnership we have with him. But the other thing that we see is that there's partnership between man and woman, that we are co-laborers in this, that we are meant to reflect his image together. In fact, we need each other in order to be re- reflect the image of God and the way that we bring life and the way that we protect that life. And that partnership is meant to be something that brings God glory. And then... Adam and Eve sin in the garden. They forsake both of those partnerships. And the spiritual life that was in us, and the way that we talked about it was there, there was this spiritual life and this physical life. And when sin happens, when Adam and Eve choose that they are going to rule on their own authority and not come under, underneath the authority of God, what happens is that the spiritual life in them dies. And they're left only with the physical And what happens immediately is this shame, right? So they begin to cover themselves up. And there's a lesser view of self and there's a lesser view of the other. And the image of God is immediately tarnished. And it's broken. 
So you have this moment where you're like, the partnership that was once with God is now broken. The partnership that was with each other is now broken. The reflection we were meant to be is now going to be extremely difficult. And I'm having a hard time seeing that you were made in the image of God. And I'm having a hard time seeing that in myself as well. Sin was the seed that was sown in us. Um, And we're cast out of the garden. Hunter did a good job of talking about the separation that is caused in this, that there's shame and destruction, ultimately that there's death. And everything else in this story, like everything, is just conflict, you know? Like if you read the story, there's just conflict everywhere. But we're not left without a promise. Genesis 3.15 says, I put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We talked about how what that is is a promise. It's the very first evangelism of the gospel and the good news. That we're not going to remain here. Like there is a restoration that's going to happen. That there's ultimately defeat that's going to happen from the seed of the woman. So we're given this hope and we're given grace. Even in the, in the passage that we just read, we are given tremendous grace. We're given grace in the way that we are covered, that God creates garments and immediately covers this shame and shows grace to us. But then we're also given this grace that we are, we are placed out of the presence of God. What you're going to see throughout the rest of Scripture is that to be in the presence of God as an, as an unrighteous, unrighteous individual is absolute destruction. You can no longer remain here. And so God protects us from himself, but he also protects us from ourselves. That there's this tree of life that's there. And he protects because he doesn't want us to remain eternally in this place of decay and destruction. So we're placed outside of the garden and, and continued this sinful conflict. So again, the Old Testament reads like, um, reads like a movie that I wouldn't let my kids watch, you know? I mean, honestly, if you, if you were to just read it from, like, from cover to cover, you're going to find this like, man, there's murder, there's deception, lying, there's rape, there's, um, there's conflict at a national level, there's conflict at a personal level. Even as you move into the very next story, the descendants Cain and Abel of Adam and Eve, Cain kills Abel, like murder immediately enters into the scene, Right? And so destruction is not something that, it doesn't feel like it's getting better. So as you read the story, you get this sense of like, even though the promise remains, the garden feels distant. Like the promise is there, and we understand that, but the garden feels like it just gets further and further and further away. And then you get these moments throughout Scripture where that promise, just as much as sin is sown throughout the entire story, there is a thread of restoration that holds the entire thing together. So you get to Isaiah 65. Guys, I know we're doing a lot. It came in hot. Um, we get to Isaiah 65, um, 17. This is what Isaiah says. He says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. The promise of restoration. The way that Jesus says it is, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. 
that where, I, that where I am, you may be also. So oftentimes, we, um, as we talk about the gospel, there, there it was. That was like all of the first half in scripture in five minutes. Um, as we talk about the gospel, we talk about the restorative work within ourselves. Talk about the fact that we sin less. Talking about the fact that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. And I'm like, yes. Absolutely. Like, like the Holy Spirit working through us should absolutely change the way that we function in this world. It should change, it changes who we are in our status. It should change the way that we interact with each other. But one of the things that is undeniable all throughout the New Testament, especially, is that there was this future hope. Like it wasn't, the gospel didn't only present a hope and a restoration for us right now, but over and over again, the the New Testament writers are talking about the age that is to come. Like the Lord's day is coming. There's a new heaven and a new earth. There's a new world where everything is going to be restored. And what it seems to be is that that is something that sustains them in everything that they're doing today. So my hope is that as we look at what does that look like? Like what does that mean that there's restoration? My hope is that as we look at that, that hope in us would produce a perseverance, a joy, a sustaining in the world that we currently live in. So there's three, three things about, our, uh, about heaven and the future world that we're going to be in. Guys, we're going to talk about heaven today. You ready for this? Um, so the first thing, heaven is a creation restored, not a world replaced. Heaven is a creation restored, not a world replaced. So as I was looking into this, I was like, okay, so what do people think about heaven? Um, And Barna Research says this. uh, Respondents were given various descriptions of heaven and asked to choose the statement that best fits their belief about heaven. Those who believe in heaven were divided between describing heaven as a state of eternal existence in God's presence, 46%, and those who said it is an actual place of rest and reward where souls go after death, 30%. Other Americans claim that heaven is its just symbolic, that's 14%, that there is no such thing as the afterlife and death, that's 5%, or that they're not sure, that's 5%. I can appreciate the last one about they're not sure because it's kind of like, if we're all going to be honest, there's an element of that in all of it. You know, Somewhere they're just like, I don't know. you know. And I think even, even here, we are going to have some clear, clear, as best as we can, idea of what heaven is going to be like. Um, but there is always this element of the unknown. But that's okay. That's what faith is. Um, so what is your idea of heaven? Um, so it said most Christians believe that heaven um, to be just a state of eternal bliss and that those who trust in Christ for salvation will experience at the resurrection of, dead, of the dead. Um, my view as a kid, um, so I didn't get saved until later in life, I was in Christian environments earlier on, um, here and there. And so, but that didn't really necessarily influence my view of heaven. My biggest influence was probably Hollywood. Um, And so I think of Angels in the Outfield. Has anyone seen Angels in the Outfield? Yes. Like, it's the best movie ever. Um, But there's, I really, like, I loved this movie as a kid. Or Field of Dreams. I think it's, there's, like an, there's like a heaven element to that as well. But Angels in the Outfield, for that, like for that reason, was like just like this, this like 
angelic. I think I got a picture. There you go. Like, look at how fucking unclear those pictures are. Those are the best pictures that I could find of this movie. 1994, guys. Um, that's what we looked at. Okay. All right. Um, so either way, there's just like these beings, spiritual beings that would just float in the air, right? And um, you have this scene where there's just like, you just got to believe, right? And there's this kid that's just kind of like waving his hand. And the whole stadium starts waving their hands. And you're just like, yes, we believe. And it's just like this awesome moment where you're like, yes, God cares about baseball, you know. And it's like, I don't know, you know. But as a kid, I'm like, yes, that's it. Um, And it's just like this. But they're just, I mean, the best that I could describe is, I don't know, they're these spiritual beings that just kind of exist somewhere. And I I know it's not down. I'm pretty sure it's up. Um, But then as you get into different Christian environments, you get a little bit more... Like, you, you shape a little bit more of, of what heaven is like for, for us. Like, what is it going to look like? A little bit. Um, I don't know about you, but my personal experience has been that heaven has been something, because of the unknown, that we don't talk about a whole lot. Um, it's something that um, it's easier to deal with what's tangible and what's before us. And so as we talk about it, the way that it's been perceived has kind of been like, all right, we're going to worship God. We're going to be in the presence of God forever. Heaven is in the presence of God. I'm like, great. Love it. Absolutely true. Um, We're going to worship God forever. Awesome. Yes. Um, The only way that I knew at the time what worship was singing. And so I was like, this means that I'm going to be in the choir for however eternity. And I thought, um, I'm not a good singer, you know. (laughs) Like, I don't particularly love singing. I do love coming together to worship. Um, But, yeah, eternity is a long time. So there's this, like, I don't know if that is something that I'm particularly excited about. But then the answer that I was always given, but, yeah, but you'll be in the presence of the Lord. So it's going to be the best thing you've ever done. And I'm like, yeah, yes. (laughs) I don't know if that's your experience. Maybe I'm the only one that has heard stuff like that. But that's just kind of like what I walked out with. I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to be singing for eternity. Um, And so that's just kind of like the idea of heaven that I brought to the table. The problem with that is as I look at Scripture, it actually has a lot more to say about what heaven's going to be like. Um, So we're going to just dip our toe into what we see. Like what is this promise that we've been given? Let's start. We're going to go from the first three chapters to the final two chapters. So let's go to Revelations chapter 2. Nope, 21. Two is in my head. Um, Revelation chapter 21. Remember, our point was that we, heaven is a creation restored, not a world replaced. So, it says this, and this is John in his vision. Now, if you want to really get into the crazy stuff, go ahead and read it. You know, John's vision. Um, there is all kinds of really good stuff. There is all, there's a lot of illustration, um, but what we see here. Uh, In John's vision is, this is what he portrays as the new heaven and new earth. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, 
for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So one of the heavy debates here is, is God simply restoring creation or is God doing away with creation and bringing in a completely new world? I can tell you where I've confidently landed, and I think it's perfectly fine if you land on the other side. Um, Where I've confidently landed is that what I see throughout all of Scripture is that God is restoring the world to the way that it was always meant to be. And this word that's used over and over again here, new, new, um, is a word that it's in Greek, it's, it's kainos. And it means, it doesn't mean to get rid of something, but it means to restore something. So the way that Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's this word where he says, it's not saying that we've gotten rid of you completely. We're saying that you have been completely restored. Like you were made Again, like replaced together in the way that you were always meant to be. So he's making this world and he's making it completely new. It's just this earth completely restored. And I think that's encouraging for me is because what you see then is something that is potentially familiar, but at the same time completely unrecognizable. Like familiar in the sense that you're like, man, this world is broken and sin has like specifically sin's effect on creation and sin's effect on us has completely destroyed this world. And to imagine a world again in the garden where provision is something that is just abundant. To imagine a world where there is no conflict. To imagine the world that's described here where there's no mourning, there's no crying, there's no pain. Those things, those are things of a world that was, that was sown through death. Like those things are no longer. I can't even fathom that. I can't even fathom that. I think one of the reasons that this has been always so difficult um, for me personally to understand and even to approach is because in my own life, I, I lost my brother who was a year older than me. There was always this separation that was there that I, um, it's hard to describe what that feels like. But I want you to know that like, to, to be that in a world where that separation is no longer, where God has restored the gap, like that is something that I'd, I had a hard time even understanding because the separation currently felt way too real for me. So I just didn't approach it. Even though everyone was just like encouraging me to saying like there's coming a day. I think for me personally, I just said I just can't, I can't right now. Um, so to know that there's a world, and I, and I know in our own, even within our body, that these things at time are things that we carry. Mourning and crying and pain, um, separation like we've talked about. I, I want you to know that one of the things that for the New Testament writers that was so encouraging was that those things wouldn't be there. We're going to live in a world where that's not even a reality. And so much so that they're not even remembered. Like it's just gone. Um, it's hard to imagine a world like that. Um, John Piper says it like this. He says, as I read the New Testament, indeed the whole Bible, it seems to me that we are encouraged on the one hand to believe that in the age to come beyond death, beyond this fallen world, there will be enough overlap 
with our present experience of creation and of God that we should hope for a sweet sense of sinless familiarity. That's one emphasis I see. But on the other hand, we are confronted in the Bible with inevitable dimensions of the future that are unknown, really unknown. The unknowns of what those joys will be like beyond our present capacity to experience and to imagine. And I think that second part has been what's kept us from it. It's just this unknown. Like, what will this be like? So we see that God is restoring things from all the way back to Genesis 1.31, where he says this is very good. God is going to restore it to the way that it was always meant to be. So we see a couple things, even just in this passage. So heaven, um, some of the most definable factors of it is that there is a holy city, a physical city that is, now that that to me already is like, what are you talking about? Like heaven was supposed to be a place where I'm just floating in the air for eternity. Heaven, there is a holy city um, that is bustling and busy in everything that a city is. There are no tears. There is no death. There is no mourning. There is no crying. There is no pain. And these things are done because God is now dwelling with his people. Those are the things of the former world. Let's try to understand just a little bit more what this means by no, there is a city. So let's keep reading. Revelations 21, 9 through 11 um, says this. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come. I will show you the bride. Like, what a moment. (laughs) Come, I'm going to show you this bride, Um, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. We're going to get a little bit more description about this city. But what you see in this moment, this bride. The bride is the church, right? The bride is us. There is this completely restored people, and we're represented by a city. And not just any city, by the city of Jerusalem. Like, what, did, what was Jerusalem in the ancient world? Jerusalem is the place that God dwelt with his people. It was the center of the promised land. It was the place where for the only It was supposed to be the only place in all of the earth where God reigned completely over his people, all represented by the temple at the heart of it. There's this restored people that is represented by a city that's descending on the earth. Let's get a little more description about what that temple is. So 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city. That's big. Um... In Jerusalem, that is. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So you get this city that is representative of the bride. And in this city, for the first time, there is no temple. It's like, what? Like, what is Jerusalem without a temple? 
And the only way that I could think about it is what's happening here. What John is describing here is that what was meant to happen on earth was that the temple would be something where God would dwell and that that would overtake the city, that God would overtake that city and ultimately the entire world. What happens is sin, not that it overtakes God, but sin consumes this temple. And what happens is that God no longer dwells in that temple. What we see in this picture is that there is Jerusalem and there is no need for a temple because this entire city is the temple. Like God's presence is in every nook and cranny, every single corner of the city. The presence of God is there. There's no more having to go to be in his presence. There's no more ritual sacrifices that have to be made in order to be in the presence. The sacrifice has been made. And now, as a restored people, we are in this temple of a city in Jerusalem, which is this new heaven. Is that different? It's a little different. <laughs> um, as I read that, I was like, that's different than, than what I understood heaven was going to be. Um, what it sounds like is that heaven is described as what Eden was always meant to be, right? So in Eden, you have this couple that was meant to subdue and multiply. And that as they ruled the entire earth, that the presence of the Lord would then would also, that it would with them, that it would overtake the earth. And this people would be God's people and that he would be in relationship with them. And that this, these people would grow into a multitude of people and they would be the people of God. And there would be this culture and this entire nation, city, world that would be the dwelling place of the Lord, God with his creation. But it doesn't happen. But now you have this nation where Jerusalem is, and it's completely restored. And it says the gates are always open. <laughs> what is there to be scared of? This is heaven, right? Like there is nothing to fear. So the gates are always open, and people, God's people, are passing in and out of this city. This is a radically different description of what heaven is. So... Um, one of the guys that's doing a really good job with this stuff right now is um, John Mark Comer. Um, and this is what he says about this passage. He says, the first two chapters are about the creation of the world. Um, the last two chapters are about the, uh, the recreation of the world. In the Garden of Eden, we read about rivers. In the New Jerusalem, there's a river running through the center of the city. In the Garden of Eden, we read about a tree of life in the center of the garden. In the New Jerusalem, there is a forest of trees of life on both sides of the river. In the Garden of Eden, we read about gold. In the New Jerusalem, the streets are paved with gold. In the Garden of Eden, we read about precious stones. In the New Jerusalem, those stones are the foundation of the city. In the Garden of Eden, we read about mankind with God and no curse. In the New Jerusalem, we read about mankind back with God and no more curse. Heaven is the new Eden. Um, in this sense, we see that this is a story... It is truly told between two gardens. There's a restorative work that God is doing, a thread that's sown throughout the entire scriptures. It's encouraging for us. So the first thing that we saw is that a creation, uh, heaven is a creation restored and not a world replaced. Um, and the second thing is that uh, heaven is a kingdom realized and not a concert attended. That was the best thing I could come up with. Um, a kingdom realized and not a concert attended. So what's the best concert that you've been at? 
Anybody willing to yell out their favorite concert they've ever been to? We do not have concert goers. Yes. Camp? Nice. Nice. What was the concert that you said was at Johnny Brenda's recently that was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, like, concerts, I love them. Like, there's, like, there's something different about, like, listening. Well, we used to listen to, like, CDs, but, like, listen on Spotify, right? Um, listening on Spotify in the earbuds. Like, it's great, but there's an element that you're missing in a concert that maybe you don't realize until you get there. So my favorite concert I've been to was John Mayer. Um, I was not a huge John Mayer fan, but when I showed up, um, you quickly realize, like, this dude is crazy talented, like, far beyond what, like, some of his music portrays. So, like, he's, like, in between songs, just, like, riffing stuff off and, like, making up music. And you're just like, man, this is just, like, oozing out of this guy. And it was just, like, impressive. And you're just, like, you're in attendance. And you're just like, man, that is awesome. And then you get those, like, YouTube videos where every once in a while, like, someone at a concert will be brought up on stage, right? And they'll sing and they'll be like, oh, I don't know if they're planted or not, but, like, they're an incredible singer. And it's just, like, exciting because now that person that was in attendance is participating. And, like, that's really cool for everybody. Like, the, the, the whole crowd has this, like, yeah, that's us, you know? That's awesome. But in the end, you're still just, like, you bought a ticket and you're just in attendance. And I think this is the way that I've always just perceived heaven personally. I don't know if it's the way that you've perceived heaven, but it's the way that I have, where one day we're going to go and we're going to be with God, and that's great, and we're just going to observe, and God's going to do God things. Like, he's just like God, and I, I, think, I think that's true, but for me, it's always just kind of stopped there. Like, what else would we do, <laughs> you know? And I, I think what we see in Scripture is that there is not just an attendance that happens. Like, there is a true participation. Like, from the beginning, God created us to participate in his created order. And why would we think that in heaven it would be any different? We're going to worship. We're going to be in the presence of God. And this is going to be done through a participation that is perfect and flawless and without pain in the way that it was always meant to be. And he talks about this. One of the reasons that this is so evident, we talk about heaven. Jesus talks about kingdom, right? So, like, we're like, we're going to heaven one day. Jesus is like, I have a kingdom. I have, there is a kingdom of heaven. Like, we see it all throughout what he says. Matthew 18, 3 says, and, and these are all Jesus' words. And he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which is man found and he covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who in finding one pearl of great value went and sold everything that he had and he bought it. Like what two great illustrations. There's nothing else in this world that is as valuable, valuable as this kingdom. And then Matthew 13, 31 through 32. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all of the garden plants, and it becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come, and they make their nests in its branches. This is kingdom speak. And then he gets even to when they ask him, But how do you pray? Remember what he says. He says, Matthew 6, 9 through 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Side note, Jesus is praying um, that the kingdom would come to heaven and not that God would destroy the earth so that the kingdom can come. Just a side note. Um, the kingdom comes. So the question is, if we're going to look forward to something that we know very little about, we ought to at least, like how do we speak about this, right? Like we ought to at least speak about this in the same way that Jesus spoke about it. He spoke about it as a kingdom. And we get a little bit more insight into what that kingdom looks like in Isaiah. So Isaiah 65, we're going to do 17, then we're going to do 21 through 25. We read this already. The first part we read already says, For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. This is the part that blew my mind. Like this is, this will just blow fuses, I promise. You're just going to be like, no way. Um, verse 21. This is his description of the new heaven and the new earth. He says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build another and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. That's like, I'm near. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. Remember the curse. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. It's like, that is, a, that is a robust view of what the new heavens and the new earth will look like. They're going to build houses and live in them. They're going to plant vineyards and they're going to eat from them. And they build these houses. No one else is going to take over that. When they, when they work, they're going to enjoy the fruits of that labor. Like, when they speak, I'm going to be there. And in all of, like, their existence, it is going to be protected by this peaceful world that we live in. Nothing's going to destroy it. Um, again, a city. Like, What? That's crazy to think that that is what we're being called towards. Like that is the restored work that God is doing in this world, that he's restoring us from this garden to this place where we will participate the way that we were always meant to in a world that no longer is broken and no longer has this seed of sin and death in it. It's a radically different understanding that we are Part of a kingdom realized, not a concert that is attended. Um, all right, so the last thing that we're going to talk about. Um, so what does this mean for us? Like all of this. You're like, okay, so what? Okay. It changes a lot. What? Why does it matter? Um, this is the last thing that we see. Um, as people that are part of this kingdom, um, we live as citizens now of a kingdom that is not yet. We live as citizens now of a kingdom that is not yet. So that takes me to Philippians chapter 3, 17, 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to their example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. So they were believers and now they're enemies. Their end is destruction. 
their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with, uh, um, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him every to sub- be subject to himself. Um, I have a hard time reading today. Um, so this is the question for us. Is like, what does it look like for us here now? We live in Fishtown, some of us. Um, we live in Philly, all of us. Um, and we, we all, I, I think what we've found over the past year is that, and we have this idea of what does it mean to be a church, you know? What does it mean to be the body of Christ? Um, and there's this passion in us, and I hope you hear it often, like our desire is to grow the kingdom of God. And you're going to hear that kingdom word over and over and over again because that's ultimately where we believe that we're going. Um, but the question that we, we are just forced to face is what does that mean for me today? Um, and one of the things that was extremely, extremely encouraging to me um, was 2 Peter 3, it's 11 through 13. It says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in li- live in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How do you live as a citizen of a righteous city and world that's completely broken? Um, I will say the only way that you will do that is through the restorative work, first and foremost, of Jesus Christ. Um, this is, he is the groom. We are the bride. The people that enter this kingdom, that are part of this heavenly kingdom, are those that have, that have acknowledged that Jesus Christ is that groom. He is that sacrifice. And the only way that we are going to ever be restored to this garden, to be a part of what God has called us to be a part of, is through his sacrifice that was made on behalf of our sin. So that's first and foremost. But second, what we see is that, man, the sin that we, that we, that we walk in, this world, this sinful world that we walk in, is one that is constantly invading our space. Like daily, as you walk into the place that you work, as you walk into your home, you don't even have to go anywhere. If you're there, sin is there. Like there is this brokenness that is constantly in and around us. And it's meant for us through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk lives that are holy and righteous. And I think immediately we're like, okay, do what's right, right? (laughs) Immediately we're just like, do good things, do good things. And I think you just, we're missing it. Like, we immediately place all this pressure on us. What we see, if you look to the garden, what makes it unique is not our perfection, but it's that God is there. There's this relationship that we can be in partnership with, even now. So to live life in the garden, in the kingdom that we are citizens of, that is not yet here, to be able to give a glimpse of that heaven and the places that we go, is to be in relationship with, with God the way that we were meant to be. It's to know him and to allow yourself to be fully known by him. It's to submit yourself to him and not just out of duty, but out of desire. 
that you would know truly that God is the one that made you, created you, has a purpose for what you're doing, and that purpose ultimately is for you to live a restored life. It's good news to know that there is, like, there is no end to this, you know? Like, that is Paul's rallying cry, that what can you do to me? That sin has no, like, sin and death, they have no hold on him anymore, that there is life beyond this life. This is what we were made for. This is what it looks like for us to walk as citizens. Man, I think as a church, um, man, I'm excited to talk about next year, to talk about the Holy Spirit, to talk about the role of the Spirit within the church and in the body. One of the primary things that we see all throughout Scripture, especially 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is that this Spirit brings unity. And that unity is going to bring about a people that functions and looks different like we just look different that there would be a kingdom here that looks unique because the kingdom is not yet here right um yeah I had someone ask me just the other day so what is the purpose of Sunday morning you know and uh it's a question that I've asked myself so that's a good question um and I I, maybe it was just because I was in this but I I couldn't get past this this is the time that we're reminded that we are, we're a kingdom. Like, we're a kingdom with a king. And he is meant to reign and rule. And the way that we function together through the power of the Spirit, man, that is put on display in this moment. Like, it's put on display in the way that we worship. It's put on display in the way that we submit ourselves to the teaching of the word. It's put on the display in the way that we look at one another and we say, you know what? Like, sin is still present, but let me again remind you of the gospel. Like, there's coming a day. There's coming a day that we are going to be before the Lord. Let's, let's continue to address the brokenness that we have and continue to shed light on these things because, man, Jesus is sufficient in all things. So we are a kingdom with a king and it's put on display in this moment, and it enables us to also put it on display as we go out from here, right? I mean, what, other, what, better, what better way is there to spend our time than to be in the presence of the Lord together as a kingdom? Not yet, but someday. And with eager longing, like looking forward to that day. Um, I think one of the things that for my family, um, this has been kind of our rallying cry. Um, I, think, I think you should have a vision statement, right? Like in your life. You don't, even, you don't need to know it right now. Um, if you do, that's cool. But here's the two things that make a good vision statement. One, they encompass as best you can the goal as to what you're aiming towards, but they're also very like, memorable. Um, and so for that reason, ours couldn't be very long. <laughs> uh, and so for Megan and I, as we prayed over what our family was going to be about, there's two things that came to mind. And we've walked some of you through this as to what does it mean to like, consider that your family and who you are carries a greater purpose in, in this world. Um, and so one, one of the, like, our, our statement was very short. We said, as, as a family, the Gensch family, we are going to pursue love and we are going to think eternally in all things. Like, that's what, what we're going to do. We're going to pursue love and we're going to think eternally in all things. 
Um, the passage that we got it out of was Philippians 1, 9 through 11. It says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. That's what we're talking about. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We see these two things, that we are going to pursue love. That means that in all circumstances, we demonstrate the love that was demonstrated to us. And that we, the way that it's put here is that we approve what is excellent. You know, like, what are you approving in your life? I don't know that we always think about it that way. But, like, there are things that enter into our life that we decide, just like Adam and Eve in the, in the garden, and say, this is good. We approve of this. And are you approving the things that are excellent? Like, are you approving the things that God approves? Like, are you declaring in unison with the Lord saying, this is good, and in unison God is saying, it's because I said it was good. Like, this is a good thing. Or are you approving things that aren't excellent in your life? That's going to produce poor fruit. So we pursue love and that we display these things and we approve what is excellent so that we'd be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Maybe we think eternally, which is this world is not our home. There's coming a day that we are going to be restored. Um, so I wanted to leave you with just a couple questions. As the band comes up and as we finish up, um, there are, whew, there's a lot to, a lot of different positions. There's a lot of passages that we didn't cover. If you have more questions about like, hey, so like what is heaven really going to be like? I would love to talk about it. Like let's talk more. Um, there are all kinds of different views on what it's going to look like. This is what we see as one that um, is consistent with the narrative of Scripture, taking in, into consideration all of what God has given us. Um, but I wanted to leave you with just a couple questions. As we do this, as we live as citizens of a kingdom um, now, of a kingdom that's not yet, then um, the questions that you'd consider is, are you living as though Jesus is king now? Like, is Jesus king of your life and the thing that you do? And the first, thing, the first question is, has he restored your life through the gospel? The second question is, that, I mean, does he have authority over you, like personally? As you walk through your life, are you king of your life? Or does, does Jesus have the ultimate authority and the say over every moment? Um, are you treasuring eternal things? You know, you, are you appropriately treasuring what's eternal? Um, are you displaying heaven on earth to those around you? That's as you look, walk through a broken world, are there moments that because you are a citizen of a different kingdom, Others would see that there's something different in the way that you love others and the way that you display love towards others, the way that you sacrifice, the way that you suffer. All of these things are marks of a kingdom. Um, and are you full of hope and a longing for heaven? Um, that's, that's Paul in Romans 3 saying, I don't consider the sufferings of this present time worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. It's not even worth it. Like, they don't even compare. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope that these are things that you discuss in your DNA groups. I hope these are things that you can discuss, like, in your missional communities, um, just with other people in the church. Like, pull each other aside and say, man, I know that I'm a citizen of this kingdom, but I need to, I need to do a better job of approving what's excellent because I just feel like I'm, I'm saying things are good that aren't. I need to do a better job of, of giving, like, let, allowing Jesus to sit on the throne of my life as the king in this kingdom. Um, yeah, let me pray for us this morning. If you have any questions or anything, we, I'd love to talk to you about it. Let's pray.
Father, um, give us an even better understanding. Um, Lord, there's so much of this is just unknown. But what does it look like for us to live life as though we are in the garden right now? Lord, to not live life as though there is no hope. Lord, to not live life as though you haven't sacrificed on the cross and there isn't restoration. Lord, but that we would live a life that is marked by a relationship with you that transforms the way that we relate to everyone else, the way that we see the image in ourselves and the way that we honor the image in another. Lord, that it would just change us. Lord, that it would be overwhelmingly evident that we are citizens of a different kingdom. As Jesus said, that there is his kingdom is just, it's just not of this world. Father, I pray that you would bring unity for us as a church. Lord, that your spirit would make us one in a way that we probably can't even fathom. Lord, that even our best idea of what it would be like to function in unison, Lord, would be just completely put to shame as to what you can do through the spirit in your body. Lord, make us one. Father, we love you. Be with us uh, in your name. Amen. Amen.